And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to uh, Bethania, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in the city for some days, <clears throat> and on a Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. <clears throat> the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Thank you, Paul. You may be seated. We are uh, in the book of Acts, and this is, a, this is a good time to remind everybody that the book of Acts is a transitional book, right? It's, it's uh, bridging the gap from Jesus' ministry to the church age, um, and uh, a lot of things in the book of Acts are not prescriptive. They are descriptive of how the early church began, and uh, some of the things that happened in there, as we're going to see today, some of the things that happened in here aren't always the way that we're going to experience life on earth now, but uh, it is good for us to read and study these things uh, because God has given them to us to do that. We have a lot of decisions to make in this life, don't we? We do. And the bigger the decision, it seems like the more we are interested in what God has to say. And so when we think about things like, for example, the call to ministry or whom to marry, or what profession to choose, or where to attend college. Now, what profession to choose and where to attend college, that's heavy on the minds of our DCS upperclassmen right now, and probably everybody who's homeschool or public school or Christian school, any school, uh, they are asking themselves what profession they ought to choose and where to attend college. What are we supposed to be doing? In the passage this morning, we're going to see kind of a a primer, if you will, on what God's Word says about guidance in our lives. And it turns out that people in general, but Christians in specific, we have odd ways of thinking about guidance, right? We're very irrational and contradictory creatures in many ways. So, for example, let me just give you an example. We, we may, you may be a business owner, and you may do a survey of all your customers to try to figure out what you should do next to serve your customers. Well, here's the problem. You're going to give that survey, whatever the results come back, you're probably going to give them a heavy amount of attention. And you're, you might give that a lot of weight on what you ought to do next. But to the customer, you know, the customer who every time we so much as go and buy a stick of gum, we're getting an email from Walmart saying, how was your experience? Please fill out this survey, right? 
I call to add a vehicle to my car insurance, and they say, hey, uh, stick, stick around at the end of the call and answer a few questions on the survey. And we're being inundated with surveys, and so we, the customers, might feel annoyed by uh, surveys, and so we might give almost zero time and effort and thought to completing them. In fact, we may use it as a, as a we may use it as an opportunity to complain about surveys. You know, what's the number one thing you didn't like about this experience? That you surveyed me at the end, right? Another example, people may rely on their friends for guidance, right? But in big decisions that they're making, they may call their friends and say, well, what do you think? And the problem is, is that your friend has no skin in the game. In other words, your friends aren't going to experience any of the consequences of the decision that you're making. All kinds of people receive advice in all different kinds of ways. It was when I was a child, uh, Ronald Reagan was the president. That kind of shows my age. And uh, it was rumored that Nancy Reagan consulted astrologers and mediums for guidance. And uh, the, the real concern was, was Ronald was the president listening to any of this stuff? I don't know if you guys are followers of, of current affairs or whatever, but Aaron Rodgers, I hate to pick on the Packers, uh, Pastor Hintz. Uh, but I'm going to pick on the Packers for just a minute. Aaron Rodgers is currently, I think, about to enter a cave in complete darkness for four days with one question on his mind. Do I play quarterback again next year? That's the process that he's picked. Four days in complete darkness in a cave. Why? Some friends of his told him that they went into this cave experience when they were making a big decision, and they had quite... They, they had quite an experience, an epiphany, if you will, while they were in the cave. So that's what he's decided to do. I once heard a story, and I probably, you've probably heard me tell this story before, but I once heard a story about a young man who was smitten by a young lady. Just, he just was in love with this young lady. They were of marrying age, and he was wanting to really, really settle down and get married to her. There was only one problem, and one and only one problem was that she was not interested in him at all. That's it. Now, these two young people, uh, by chance, happened to attend the same church. And so the young man went to the pastor of the church and sought his counsel. What should I do to capture the heart of this young lady? And the pastor thought about it for a while and thought about it for a while and thought about it for a while. And he says, have you not read in the Old Testament how the Israelites, when they were going up against Jericho, they marched around the the walls of the city of Jericho seven times, and the walls came tumbling down. Here's what you do, young man. You march around this young lady seven times, and the walls of her heart will come tumbling down. So he did. He found her, he found her and he marched around her seven times. And, you know, while, while he's doing this, you know, she's thinking, well, this is awkward. What on earth are you doing? So he proceeded to tell her that the pastor said that if he marched around her seven times, that the walls of her heart were come tumbling down, and that she would fall in love with him, and they could be married. And she, very foolishly, listened to that. That was very poor advice. And because it was the pastor, and because what he said carried weight with her, she decided to enter a relationship with him. This is why, this is, the kind of stories that I just told you are why a proper understanding, a biblical understanding of guidance is so very important. Because we can get ourselves in all kinds of tangles as Christians, as people, if we don't think about guidance 
uh, properly. We can fall for all kinds of propaganda. There's all kinds of words that we might use. You know, um, I set out a fleece and the Lord answered. Or uh, God opened a door here, God closed a door there. I, I want to caution us against such things, right? I want to caution us against such things. Let me give you a couple examples of why. In 1 Corinthians, and I'm just, just by way of introduction here, 1 Corinthians 16, 8, and 9, Paul said this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, usually when we talk about the Lord opening a door, it's like he paved the way, the door's open, the opportunity is there, I just have to walk through, and it's going to be easy because the Lord opened the door. But the only time that it's mentioned about a door in the Scriptures Paul says this, there's a wide door for effective work, a wide door for an effective work has opened to me, comma, and there are many adversaries. Read, we're going to read later on in the book of Acts, Acts 19, where Paul is in Ephesus and he is facing many adversaries and the city gets so riled up against what Paul is saying that there is a riot. I don't think in our modern context we would call that an open door. We might call that a closed door. Now, let me add one more thing to the, to the open door, closed door kind of thinking. We might have a missionary come to Delaware Bible Church to give a missionary report, and they might stand behind this pulpit, and they'll say, you know what? Uh, we were working on distributing Bibles in this area of the world where it's illegal to do so. And we were attempting to get the Bibles into the illegal zone, and we were stopped by the authorities and so we concluded that God has prevented us from taking the Bibles into that region. And that missionary might leave and we might applaud them for listening to the voice of God. But the very next week, another missionary that has a very similar mission would come to Delaware Bible Church and report and say, we were trying to get Bibles into that very same region, that very same illegal region. And the first time that we tried, yes, the authorities found us out and, and we were stopped. But you know what? Knowing that the Word of God needs to be in the hands of the people of God, knowing that the, that the church having the Scriptures is a good thing, we attempted a second time. Now, we were thwarted a second time by the very same authorities. But on the third time, the smuggling attempts that we made to get those Bibles into those people's hands in that illegal zone worked. And now our brothers and sisters in Christ in this one particular area of the world have the scriptures in their language in their hands, praise the Lord. And, we would, and that missionary would leave and we would probably applaud them for their tenacity. And so this open doors, closed doors thing is sketchy. What's the truth? What's the truth? Well, let's get into the text today and let's talk about it a little bit. The big question that we're going to wrestle with today is this. How does Acts 16, 6 to 15 help us gain a better understanding of God's guidance in our lives? How does that happen, that we get a better understanding of God's guidance in our lives? Three points, really, we're going to go through. Number one is this. You can learn to recognize when God is working. You can learn to recognize when God is working. We're going to see some supernatural things happen in the first part of this text. Verses 6 to 10 says this, And as they were, uh, sorry, and they were, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, what, what word were they trying to speak? Let's review their mission real quick. 
What were they trying to do? Well, they were trying to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the news that is so good for us today that no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, right? No matter what sins you've committed in your past, right? No matter anything about you, if you in your brokenness and in your broken relationship with God will come in the name of Jesus, trusting Jesus who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, he's God in the flesh, trusting that, number one, that Jesus' payment on the cross of the penalty of our sins is sufficient, and number two, allowing him to be the author, the the shaper of our lives, making him the Lord, the master of our lives. If we will come in faith, trusting him as our Savior and as our Master, our Lord, we will be saved. This is good news. This was good news back then, just as much as it's good news today. And Paul and Silas were on a mission to spread this good news. But as they were going about these different regions, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak this word in Asia. Now, frustratingly to me, I trust God. The Bible doesn't give us any more details other than that. But I highly doubt that this was a, well, the door is closed situation. I'm more thinking that something so supernatural happened that it pointed them to the reality that this was God, the Holy Spirit, doing this. Because that's what the text says. The Holy Spirit forbid them to speak the word in Asia. Again, I don't know exactly what, how that shook out, but that's what happened. Verse 7, then they, they came up to Mysia, and they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus, I looked it up in the Greek, it's, it's, that's exactly what it says. Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit, and God in the per person of Jesus himself, is directing this mission. And again, I believe that the second case of them being stopped from going into Bithynia is also something that was so supernatural and so clear to them that they understood that this is Jesus redirecting us. This is Jesus changing our, where we're going to go. Now, notice that Paul and Silas did not stop. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia to help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. couple things here. Number one, now we see the pronoun we, which just FYI probably gives us some clues that at this point Luke had joined the mission. Luke was with them now because he's using the uh, plural pronoun, we. First person plural, uh, we. But secondly, that there's a third supernatural thing that happens in this text, and that's that, that Paul sees a vision, a, a man in Macedonia asking for help. And folks, I would argue that the number one help that any of us can receive on this earth is not financial. The number one help on this earth that we can receive is not to help with a flat tire along the side of 23. The best help that we can get as human beings is for our sins to be forgiven and our relationship to be restored between us and a holy God. And so... 
He's asking for that help. Now, what, how can we read this text? What principles can we glean from it, knowing that it's not a daily, it's not a daily occurrence for me? I don't know about you, but it's not a daily occurrence for me that something so striking happens in my life that I go, that was the Holy Spirit redirecting me, or that was the Spirit of Jesus redirecting me. And certainly, I'm not laying my head down on the pillow and seeing visions like this, right? Or it doesn't say that he was sleeping. Paul, it said it's, uh, a vision appeared to Paul at night. He wasn't necessarily sleeping, right? So some, some things that we can glean from this, some principles, is number one, know when not to speak. Know when not to speak. Take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 10 real quick, and we'll, we'll talk just, just about this. I've covered this ground before, but it, it bears repeating because it's very important to understand God's guidance in our lives. Jesus is about to send out his disciples, and look what he, how he instructs them. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pay earnest, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a house and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to, your, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, and I tell you it will be more honorable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What are we talking about here? We're, we're talking about here about this principle that we've covered before about finding a person of peace. In other words, when, when you meet someone new and you are on your mission to love God, love others, and make disciples, and eventually you want to share the gospel with that person, only one of two things is going to happen, right? When you open up your mouth to bring God into the conversation, they're either going to want to talk about it, they're going to be curious, they're going to have questions, or they're going to shut you up. They're going to make it clear to you that this is not a topic they want to talk about and that you should stop talking about it immediately. And so what is our role as Christians? Well, we are looking for a person of peace, right? Like it says in that in that Luke passage, we are looking for a person of peace. We're looking for a person where God is already starting to work in their heart, and we are there as God's ambassador to give them the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you have someone that's open to it, then by all means, talk to them, share with them, uh, and be prepared to do so. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But if not, if they shut you up, you might say something akin to what, to what, uh, Jesus instructed his disciples, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is real and you need to know it. But because you've asked me to be quiet, 
I'll move on. But you need, to, you, need to, you need to figure this out in your life. Plant a seed, move on. Secondly, circumstances beyond our control. Uh, one of the things that invariably happens in our lives, as it happened these, to Paul and Silas, is that they're, they're on mission and they're trying to do something and they're stopped, right? They're stopped by the Holy Spirit, then they're stopped by the Spirit of Jesus, and then a, a vision calls them into an area far away that's going to take them over land and sea to get there. And in those circumstances, we can conclude, if we're not thinking properly, when things don't go the way we want them to go, we can conclude that perhaps God is working against us. And I assure you, in those circumstances, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Because Romans 8.28 says this, For we know that for those that love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There are things that are part of God's sovereign will that we don't understand, that were not revealed to us ahead of time, but that are part of his plan because he has stated that he desires that all men are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so he's, God is at work to make that happen. Give, uh, and, and as I've said before, God will do everything in his power to save as many as he can without violating his own nature. God will not violate who he is. That means he won't lie, he won't manipulate, he won't do things that are against his nature. So when circumstances pop up, as they did for Paul and Silas, we can choose to abandon ship, abandon the mission, and say, ah, God's, God's closed this door. Or we can say, well, I don't know what God has for us next, but he doesn't, perhaps, what I thought was going the way I thought it was going to unfold is not true. And we can even learn to be joyful in that. And then the last thing I would say is, is I don't want to put, I want to be careful not to put God in a box, okay? And so, Every now and again, you'll hear about someone who has heard or saw some sort of supernatural sign. Now, I want to be clear. In 1 Corinthians 14, talks all about tongues and how tongues are to be used to edify the church. They're to be used in a specific way to edify the church. And I want to be very clear that uh, I'm not prepared to put God in a box and say that supernatural things never happen. I believe in a supernatural God. But let me ask you this question, just a test question. Many of us in this room are married, so that means you have a spouse. And uh, so let me ask you this. Would you rather have some clue, ideally written down, of everything that your spouse expects of you and that, your, that would make a harmonious relationship with your spouse, or would you rather just have them tell you on a minute-by-minute -minute basis? Meaning, uh, if I generally know that my wife, you know, likes it when I take care of the trash, and I just do it, right, because I love her, uh, and I just do it, would, you, would, would I rather have that as a man, or would I rather have uh, her say to me, while I'm sitting on the couch, perhaps with a blanket on and a pillow, taking a nap, take out the trash, almost like a supernatural vision. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is that Unlike Paul and Silas, we, as the New Testament, as the church, we have the fully, we, we have the New Testament in our hands. God has given us 
the guidelines for what he wants from us. He's given us the teachings of Jesus Christ. And, and so I would, I would argue with you that we're better off, right? We're better off than uh, Paul and Silas who are simply trying to do the work and God is redirecting them here, redirecting them there, and giving them visions about this and that. So, but if, if you are going along in your life and you're trying to fulfill and carry out the mission of Jesus Christ and somehow you get a supernatural sign, First John, we're supposed to test the spirits, right? Test the spirits. In other words, God is never going to tell you to do something against his word. I've had people tell me that before. Uh, Pastor, God gave me a sign, and I believe that sign is telling me to do something, and what that something is, is sin. It clearly articulated in Scripture. It's sin. No, 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 that's wrong. That's wrong. So um, just be careful with that stuff. We have good guidance from God's word about what our job here is supposed to be. Trouble is, uh, many fail to take up the mission. All right. Secondly, you should continue the work towards the mission despite circumstances. You should continue the, to work towards the mission despite circumstances. Look at verses 11, 15. So, setting sail, so they had to cross water here from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. A few things to, a few things to consider here. There are some Christians that are totally against making any plans, uh, setting, setting um, any structures in place, or you know, five-year plans, ten-year plans. They just said, we're going to let the Lord lead us, right? And what we see in this text is that, um, yes, they had to go to, they were called to Macedonia, and they had to make plans to get there. They had to contract a ship, set sail, or purchase passage, whatever. And when they got there, they had to figure out how they were going to minister the gospel, and they followed through with that. Notice none of that was revealed supernaturally, right? They were told to go to Macedonia. They picked the city to go to. They picked what to do on the Sabbath day. They picked all these things. We'll talk more about that in a second. And so we need to make plans, but we need to fit those plans into what God is doing. James says it this way. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do, know not, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Stop right there. Make plans but you don't know what the sovereign will of God is. You don't know how circumstances are going to unfold, right? So what's his advice then? What's his, instead, well, he goes on to say, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. It's okay to make plans to do things, but you make those plans as the Lord wills. Meaning, you don't make those plans and as you're, you're, starting to get a, you're starting to get an understanding that your plans aren't going to unfold exactly the way you want. You don't charge that to God as he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. You, said, you say to yourself, this is how God has chosen to unfold his plans, so I'm going to change mine to fit what he's doing. Very different. 
Third, or secondly, think strategically. Think strategically, right? Now, uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly why they chose to go to Philippi, but here's what the text says. That Philippi is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It's not the capital, but it's important. It's a leading city of that district. It's also a Roman colony, and Paul and Silas are both Roman citizens, which means that if they were to get themselves into some trouble with the law, they would have some extra rights and some levers to throw that would help them in those situations. So I can't speak with definitive confidence here, but it's possible that they went, they chose to go into Philippi for those two reasons, that it was an a, a important and leading city, perhaps an influential city, and it was a Roman colony. Proverbs 21.5 says this, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Uh, these guys seem to be thinking strategically about what they were going to do. Third thing I would say is that they understood the culture, and we should too. Uh, they should have under understood the culture. Um, their typical MO when they went into a city, Paul's typical procedure was on the Sabbath day to go to the synagogue and to talk to the God-fearing people in the synagogue. Apparently, there was no synagogue in Philippi because a synagogue requires 10 Jewish men in the city in order to, once they get 10 Jewish men, they're supposed to build a synagogue. And so the Jewish population there was probably very low. So what do they do? Well, they know. They've got some understanding of the culture that when when there's Jews around, but there's no synagogue, that what you do on the Sabbath day, you go outside the city gates, you go to the local river, which they all had to have a water source, you go to the local river, and you gather there, and you pray. So, what did they do? Understanding the culture, they went out to that spot, and they found a group of God-fearing people. Um, Lydia herself was not a Jewish lady, she was probably a proselyte, meaning that she was a God-fearing Gentile, right? But perhaps had not learned of the gospel yet. So they went out there. They understood the culture. What cultural things about the United States may present challenges to us to share the gospel? What cultural things present um, open doors, uh, opportunities to share the gospel, right? Uh, we should think about that. And then uh, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses 19-23, this is where Paul is saying, I have become all things to all people that I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul is saying, I adapt what I'm doing to the culture. And so he understood what was going on in Philippi, so he took advantage of it. And then finally... Um, and finally, uh, seize opportunities to act. Seize opportunities to act. While there wasn't a synagogue in the city, they did manage to find some God-fearing women, and they, set, they took the opportunity to sit down and to start speaking to them. And that's exactly what they did. Ephesians 5, 15, 16 says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. I don't know about you, but for me, 
Uh, sometimes I get into a conversation with a new person, and I sense that I could steer this conversation in a spiritual direction, and I do get it in a spiritual direction, and I start to talk to them about the Lord, and sometimes, uh, if I'm not careful, I'll pull my punch. I'll not take full advantage of the opportunity to ask them where they're at, what's their relationship with the Lord, and, or even share the gospel with them. We need to be people who are diligent to seize these opportunities to act as Paul and Silas give us example. All right, last point is you should be ready to harvest the fruit. You should be ready to harvest the fruit. Verses 14 and 15 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That's how we think she was a proselyte. proselyte meaning she was a non-Jewish follower of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, number one is be prepared to speak. Be prepared to speak. Paul and Silas began to share the gospel in accordance with their mission. And the text says that the Lord opened her heart, Lydia's heart, to pay attention to what he was saying. The, the evidence that Lydia was seeking God was that she was by the river on the Sabbath day praying. And the fact that God was working in her heart and that Paul and Silas showed up, that this is a classic example of God working and man working. We are carrying out our mission. God is doing the heavy lifting. Let me ask you this question. How many people in this room have the capability to change anyone's heart? Anyone? I don't have that capability. I'm not God, and I don't think anybody in this room is either, right? Our job, our mission is to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to watch God work in the hearts of people, changing their hearts, bringing them to the point of repentance, turn away from their old way of life and give their lives over to following Christ. And we see a clear example of that here in the text. God is doing the heavy lifting. Paul and Silas are simply being faithful to share the good news to this group of, of women. Now let me ask you this, this question. Uh, if you met someone who was seeking God, what would you say to them? Are you prepared? Would you have the words? Would you have the scripture references to give? Would you, what would you say? And if the answer is, I don't know, then there's, brothers and sisters, there's some growth opportunities in your life, some low-hanging fruit, if you will, that can be uh, gathered immediately, is to work that out, what you would say to them. Because 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. When I hear people talk about Christ, non-Christian people, when I hear non-Christian people talk about Christ and Christians, I just sit there and I think, man, there's so much opportunity because we are, Christ is misunderstood and we are misunderstood. And if we could just approach folks with gentleness and show them who he is, 
and, and talk to them maybe a little bit about who we are. Um, there's tons of opportunity there for us to speak. So be prepared to speak. And secondly, be prepared to act. Be prepared to act. Um, Lydia is there, right? Lydia is already beginning to show the fruit of the Holy Spirit. She gets baptized. I'm guessing, I, I don't know, this is somewhat divine speculation, but she rounds up her household and brings them to see Paul and Silas, or takes Paul and Silas to see them. And they are exposed to the gospel, and she and her household are baptized. By the way, this is not a proof text for infant baptism. just want to say that out loud. Uh, some folks will take this text and others like it and say, oh, the whole household was baptized. That surely includes infants. But typically in Jewish, in, in, in the thought of the culture of this day, a household meant all the adults in the house. All the, all the adults in the house. So she's starting to show the fruit. And she invites them, Paul and Silas, to lodge at her house. She was willing to give of her time and treasure to serve the Lord by serving these men. She was willing to practice hospitality. Now, I'm not meaning to step on any toes. Well, maybe just a little bit. But I've talked to several pastors throughout the last few weeks for some reason. I don't get to do that very often, but uh, I've rubbed some shoulders with some other pastors. And one of the things that I've heard expressed two, maybe three times is the following sentiment. When it comes to the church today, people are eager to help out by giving financially, but much less eager to give by opening the door to their house. Much less eager to serve by committing their time in a ministry setting. And so <clears throat> I just want to maybe leave you with this on this point. Consider what the Lord has done for you. The answer to what the Lord has done for you is, is if you're thinking properly, everything. What God has done for you is everything. He's taken you from a position where you are doomed to separation from God, death, and hell for eternity, and transferred you into his kingdom where you are a fellow heir of that kingdom with Christ. Think about that. Let that sink in for half a minute. Consider what he's done for you. Consider the twofold blessing of serving him. First, in the time that you spend serving God, you will likely keep yourself from falling into sin, at least during that time. And secondly, the time that you spend serving God will be such a blessing to the church. Or sorry, it will be such a blessing to others. It will glorify God. It will strengthen the church and also beautify her as well. In other words, when I say beautify the church, I mean the people in the community will look at Delaware Bible Church and say things like, the people there are so generous. The people there are so giving. What would this community be like if it weren't there? Are you prepared to act? You know, just, just as a, just to put a, a concrete example to that. Perhaps you're at a stage of life where this would be doable for you. To take the time, the, the few hours after Sunday morning worship, 
and to set those aside and say, you know, if I meet someone at new, if I meet someone new at church today, then I'm going to be ready to either bring them back to the house for lunch or, you know, with an invitation. Don't, don't, don't ever force someone to go back to your house. That's crossing a line, okay? But to invite them back to your house and to, to take lunch with them or to take them out, even to Wendy's, you know, for, or something like that for lunch, I'm going to set those hours aside and I'm going to use those to perhaps serve the Lord. That would be a very powerful thing. And there's many other things that you could do like that. So, the answer to the question. Acts 16, 6 to 15 helps us to get clarity on how God provides guidance in our mission in life. Here's how he does it. We have complete freedom within the bounds of his moral will. Right? Whatever God has said in his word, we have the freedom to operate our lives within that. We don't have to, what's the Bible say about who we should marry? Well, we should marry, we should not be unequally yoked, right? So Christian men should marry Christian women and vice versa. And that's it. Is there a one? No. It's the one that you picked that's a Christian, right? That's, that's the one. Should you use wisdom and insight, perhaps from your parents and others, to help you know, make sure there's no red flags or anything like, sure, yeah, but is it, is it, are you going to go, how, how, are you going to need to go out and lay out fleeces and look for open doors and close, Lord, if you want me to marry Sally, uh, then please, you know, let the Bengals win the Super Bowl. <laughs> Wait, that was just Brad that did that. No, no, never mind. That, that's not true. That's, I made that up. But you get the idea. That's, that, that line of thinking is not right. It's not right. And it's trapped many Christians. It's, it's caused many Christians to go into strange ways of thinking. We are to be about the mission of loving God, loving others, making disciples, operating our lives within the, within the bounds that God has given us in his word because those are the most liberating bounds we can live in. And... That's it. All right, so by way of application, here's some things to, to think about. By what popular but unbiblical guidance methods need to be tossed overboard in your life, right? Are you the type of person that sets out fleeces? Go read about Gideon. I don't think Gideon did that for good reasons. I think Gideon did that in the book of Judges because he was faithless. God had already told him what to do, and he chose to test God over and over again to to uh, get the answer that God had already given him. Um, so think about, you know, are you the type of person who seeks God's will in a popular but perhaps an unbiblical way? Toss that aside. Secondly, what is your reaction, right, when you are hindered from doing what you think God wants you to do right now? In other words, um, do you chalk that up to, be, to God being against you, or do you say, oh, God's revealed to me part of his sovereign plan, and I'm just going to go with it, right? I'm going to go with it, and um, I'm going to operate my life according to his word within the context of what he's revealed. And then thirdly, are you prepared to act, to speak and act when God gives you opportunity? If not, you should equip yourself to do that. This book 
is a really good book. I recommend it. I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but I know you can get it used. Decision-Making in the Will of God. I put it in your bulletin insert by Gary Friesen. Um, Gary does a great job, Mr. Friesen does a great job of exploring some unbiblical ways of, that we've adopted guidance methods in our lives. And then that's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book, he get, does a very good job of outlining how we should be allowing the Lord to lead us in our lives. And it's a very, very worthwhile read. You can borrow my copy. I just got to have it back because they're hard to, they're getting harder and harder to get. All right, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, you lead your dear, your dear children along, and we want to be wise as to how you do that. And um, Father, I pray that, that we would be the type that's not sitting out fleeces or looking for open doors and closed doors, but instead, uh, Father, that we would be operating our life according to your word. And in order to do that, we need to read it, study it, practice obedience to it. So, Father, as we do this, I pray that you would bless us in our efforts to accomplish that which you put us on this earth to do, to love you with everything that we've got, to love others as ourselves, and to make followers of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.